0: Hello everybody, Josh Brown here, back for another great episode on Franchise Euphoria. Well, today's episode is brought to you by IndieFranchiseLaw.com, a leading resource in the franchise space to help you if you're considering buying a franchise, turning your business into a franchise or growing your business through a licensing or franchise structure. So go on, check it out, IndieFranchiseLaw.com. I think you'll find a lot of valuable and free information as you continue to kind of weigh franchising and licensing and the growth of your business. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's episode. On today's episode of Franchise Euphoria, I've got Shirin Kanji, who's responsible for overseeing all of impact properties, investment-related activities, and directly oversees the newly formed retail division, which includes 75 rent-a-center franchised locations and two CarStar Franchise locations. Mr. Kanji holds a BS in finance and political science from NYU Stern School of Business and an MS in real estate finance and development from NYU real estate Institute. He's a member of YPO Florida Chapter, part of the NYU Alumni Advisory Board for the West Coast of Florida Chapter and the NYU Alumni Mentor Network. I hope you enjoy this interview uh, with Shirin. It's a fascinating dive into just how he and his company, The Impact Properties, decided to invest in a large amount of franchise locations, how they make those decisions and how they make the decisions going forward. So without further ado, hope you enjoy this interview. Hello, Shereen. Welcome to Franchise Euphoria. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me, Josh. Well, thanks for thanks for coming on the show. Obviously, your involvement with um, different franchise systems and uh, impact properties is something that, that'll be of interest to, uh, is interesting to me and also to my audience, tell us a little bit about you and sort of your your background. Sure thing, and the
1: story of Impact Properties really starts as a story of, our, of my family and my father, uh, who emigrated to this country back in 1979, 1980. And it was a true vintage American dream type story. Uh, he came over here uh, with my mom and my grandparents and a few other of our uh, close relatives um, with really nothing, nothing in their pocket, no real formal training. Um, They had run a very simple uh, kind of bar business back in the UK where where they had lived together for a while. And, you know, it's didn't know what to do, but everyone knew that the the opportunity was in America. And, you know, at that time, my mom's side of the family was um, kind of budding entrepreneurs and successful in the hotel industry in Southern California. So my father went to spend some time with them, really fell in love with that business and... You know that's that's kind of where we started and and through their assistance um, identified a couple of opportunities for kind of independent motels Um, and you probably remember kind of what these look like if we're thinking back in the day kind of the u-shape structure single story maybe 20 30 rooms a pool in the middle a little check-in desk up in the front very mom-and-pop type operation uh, in a college town Uh, and that's where i was born uh, in gainesville florida um, and that's kind of the real nascent start to impact properties. And, you know, the early days, it was uh, characterized by independent operations. And since there was no formal training, it was, you know, roll up the sleeves and just figure it out. It was transformative for, for, for my father and the family, but for our family business, because we've learned so many great lessons um, because there was no staff, we were our staff. If you were a family member and you could do something, you were working. So it was like
0: it was like pick up the mop. Let's exactly, go exactly.
1: Exactly. I think you know, like uh, my father uh, and my grandfather. My father worked the front desk and um, sales. My grandfather was the handyman. Um, I think my mom and a few of, of my aunts were working, you know, on the housekeeping side and laundry. So I mean, it was it just you know young, uh, naive, but that's very familiar, probably from you and maybe your listeners have heard from the, you know, the immigrants that came to this country back then and, you know, learning about business, learning to deal with customers and people and managing an operation, you know, without a model, you know, without proven, you know, results or history or branding, um, you know, were tough lessons to learn. But, you know, one motel turned into two, turned into three. And then, you know, shortly thereafterwards we started, we learned about franchising and we learned about what, you know, franchisors do national brands national marketing the support of the the proven business model if you call it and you know we ended up started doing you know franchise hotel deals and that's kind of really where things started taking off for us and now I'm saying probably mid to late 80s we did our first franchise uh, hotel development deal uh, in a small suburb at the time outside of Tampa uh, in Brandon Um, and my father he still jokes to this day that basically made every mistake in the book possible with building that first hotel. But, you know, that's kind of the best lessons come from that sometimes. And I think, you know, going through that process really set the stage for us to, to be able to grow and grow quickly over time. And, you know, from hotels, we, we, we franchised
0: restaurants uh, and now most recently retail as well. So it was what, about 10 years or so? running different hotels
1: yeah so on the independent motel side before we got to franchising
0: it was probably i'll say about seven eight years yeah and then did you guys did did your family sell those off to then in, invest into the franchise opportunity with the hotel
1: yeah so you know at that time you know it, it's not what the capital markets and financing is like as robust as it is today especially for mom and pop uh, independent operations but you know there there was a period of kind of recapitalizing um, existing holdings. And you know we had, you know at that time, you know we we saved everything that we earned because we wanted to keep growing. So you know a combination of the two really kind of helped set the stage for that first you know franchise opportunity. and that was a ground up development, which probably is the most risky of them all versus maybe even buying an existing location. but that's that's what
0: that's what came in front of us and where we saw the best opportunity. And so have you, your whole life worked for the family? I mean, worked with your family? In for the family So I spent,
1: um, you know, the family business impact properties has been around for almost 35 plus years now, kinda of starting from those days, as I mentioned. But um, I went to college in New York, uh, undergrad and grad NYU. Uh, and I worked in, in finance and in Wall Street for about three, four years before coming back to the family business about now 11 years ago.
0: Well, so. Now your family gets you know one hotel and they kind of get it up and going and 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 you said obviously went through and and learned a lot of learned along the way and all you know made all the different mistakes you can made and then it sounds like you know purchased slowly but surely you know one or two more one or two more um, over the years was that was that part of the strategy or was it was it just sort of it evolved over time as uh, you and your family got more comfortable with the franchising model. Yeah, I think it's the latter, Josh. I think, and I'd be
1: lying if I said that, you know, we had sat down and discussed uh, any kind of formal plan or strategy back then. You know, there was just, there was so much going on. And again, it was the family members involved in different areas uh, of the business, you know, 24-7 essentially. So, you know, we, it, it, that approach evolved over time for sure. And I think as we started learning more about franchising and how much benefit it provided, you know, the proven, you know, consistent business model, and you know, if, you know one of the things we loved the most which caused us to want to continue to invest and to grow more in franchising was that if you follow the model you know consistent execution you know stayed involved with the brand you know did your best at a local level in terms of marketing that mm-hmm. you generally would have success and you know you know obviously different brands different markets things they may fluctuate or vary be variable for to a certain degree but You know, by and large, that was the formula. And we felt that just given our DNA and just given our upbringing, that that's something we can do, you know, roll up the sleeves, work hard, follow a model and execute consistently. And I think that that's really helped drive our growth over the past 30 plus years.
0: Well, so as if hotels weren't weren't tough enough you guys thought about well why don't we expand into retail and restaurants what's what's the thinking behind that
1: <laughs> yeah i think you could you could we pick all the winners right all the ones that are uh, you know <laughs> all the ones that are experiencing transformative change now yeah and i think it's it's like anything josh i think you know when you follow the franchising model you know there's certain things we realize about ourselves and i think that's really been a key key eye-opener for us through the years is what are we really good at? What can we execute on? And let's stay there. And it's easy to 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 get distracted or to to get you know excited by the the latest trend or the newest industry or and you know sometimes we're guilty of that as well within existing spaces that we're in operate in. But you know getting into retail and restaurants was really leveraging what we thought we did well. And I think you know we managed hotels and and we owned and operated hotels. So what does that entail? You know, you're operating a people-facing business, 24/7, seven days a week, including holidays. You're never closed, so customer interaction is daily. Uh, local marketing, national marketing, managing your staff, recruiting, training, um, stay, keeping up with operating trends. You know whether it's technology more recently. Um, to even changes in laws that affect how you can and cannot operate in in our space. So, you know, we felt, what other industries could we take that to? What other industries had similar characteristics? And, you know, food and retail are very close cousins, I guess, uh, from the hotel side. And, and, you know, so far, you know, retail's probably been more of a five-plus year thing for us. And, you know, restaurants, maybe a little bit more, almost double that. But, you know, I think we found that to be true.
0: But did you initially put re- the restaurants in your hotels, or did you did you have other people who owned restaurants running them out of your hotels?
1: Yeah, so that's that's a great question. So that's kind of how we we really picked up on the on the restaurant space is that you know we had acquired some distressed assets you know during the various cycles of the economy. This is back in the early nineties. Now I'm talking you know there were a few RTC hotel deals that we bought where they were full service hotels and there was a restaurant outlet. And typically in hotels back then, the restaurant outlet never made any money. And you just kind of had it as a service, you offer breakfast, maybe people hang out after their business meetings or whatever they were in town for at the bar, perhaps, but they never were exciting. They weren't the concepts that they are now. Um, and they never made money. So we said, okay, what can we do with the restaurant to create a little extra value for the hotel operation? So again, like everything, we rolled up our sleeves, kind of came up with some solutions. And initially, we used to lease the outlets. And we're like, yeah, but you know, can we do better than the lease payment? And then that's when kind of some of the magic started happening for us, at least in that space, is that we started, it started clicking a little bit better after we kind of saw some good operators that at least from us, you know, kind of what they did. And, you know, when those opportunities
0: presented itself again, in some cases, we took that on ourselves and
1: we've done well with it since then.
0: How do you identify a great, you know, you can identify sectors and you can identify, you know, hey, we want to, we want to get into retail. But, you know, that's a big wide, deep ocean of opportunities. <laughs> and how do you discern one opportunity from the next and really decide that, hey, this is something we want to jump into for the long term?
1: Yeah, that's it's, it's great you mentioned that, Josh, because it, it's hard. And I guess the, the, the initial thought that comes to mind is it's hard because there's a lot of new things out there today, a lot of new brands, a lot of new segments, a lot of things that, that normally would not have even been possible five or 10 years ago. So it's easy to to go to the shows, you know the, you know the multi unit conference, the franchise finance, the restaurant finance development conference, all the big shows every year. You know the IFC shows, things like that. There's always a new brand. There's always new opportunities. And you know we used to you know go from aisle to aisle and me and my father through each of the rows and try to talk to as many brands and take all the information and follow up. And back then, that was a way we would grow. Is you know we'd have to be the ones to develop a new concept, an emerging concept and grow with that brand. But then, you know, we learned a lot from some of the really sharp multi-unit operators in the space that, you know, you can also grow, um, you know, through acquisition and you can buy existing stores. And, you know, we started reconciling, you know, capital allocation and spend time, you know, um, and and overall success and return for, you know, developing versus acquiring or doing a combination of both within a brand. And, you know, it's, there That ocean is pretty deep, Josh, but for us, it ultimately boils down to the unit economics. And, you know, we've learned that even, you know, whether you have an emerging brand or a mature brand, you know, it's nice that there's a few corporate stores or maybe a few initial opening stores that have big volumes or great margins or fast growth. But, you know, we've learned and sometimes a tough lesson that not all business models are created equal in those unit economics really have to make sense and it has to be scalable. And then, you know, whether it works well in one town because the guy who created the concept was from that town and he created that bar, that restaurant, that retail shop, whatever it may be. But then by the time it got to unit 20, 50, or hundred, you know, you were seeing some dilution. And that naturally happens from the initial stores in the hometown where the brand recognition is there to by the time you get to, you know, larger unit size, which, you know, it's not unexpected, but it makes it more impressive what some of the large brands have been able to do when they get that critical mass. And then you get that consistency in those unit economics. That's something we can invest in. And that's something that we can get excited about, um, you know, investing as part of our pro strategy.
0: Yeah. But the hard part is, though, is, you know, you never get to, you know, anybody who's gone through this exercise, I've certainly gone through it. I know you have, and perhaps people who are listening is that, you know, I'm not sure people have a realistic sense of the fact that you're never going to feel great about what you're doing at the outset. In other words, what I mean is, you 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 need to do the due diligence. You need to run through the unit economics, but there's not a magic uh, there's not a magic pill. Or there's not some sort of magic potion because at the end of the day, you know when you're running unit economics, especially if you're talking about a brand that's maybe new and emerging. And now you're factoring this out. I mean, there's all sorts of X factors and question marks and things that that can happen. I mean, what really at the end of the day for you guys makes you feel comfortable about your decision? I mean, is there is there one or two things that are part of looking at the unit economics that, that allow you to go, okay, this is something, this is a risk tolerance that we're okay with?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Justin. You're exactly right. I mean, there there's a lot of factors that you don't control. And, you know, you go through those the FDD and you get to, to that nice chart in the back that everyone wants to go to to look at the numbers and how the stores and the system performs. And there's, your, there's great data in there. Sometimes it's probably too much. Uh, if I'm being honest and, and I think you hit upon it exactly is that in not all situations, are you going to be able to, to, to experience the comfort level to say, Hey, this is going to work guaranteed. You know, some of the, some of the, some of the things we've worked on, we thought we're going to be slam dunks and they weren't. And the ones that we weren't so sure about have worked out the best. Right. And I think it goes back to, you know, you can't control everything. I mean, obviously you got to do due diligence. You got to underwrite the deal and, you know, ask the right questions and, you know, hopefully get good answers from the franchisor, but ultimately what helps us kind of pull the trigger and and say, hey, we're going to go to that next step or, um, you know, this is a pass or a no pass is, you know, obviously we take a look at union economics, as I mentioned, but then you kind of look at that with the cost of of developing um, that space, take a look at the competition within there. You know, there's certain segments where there's a lot of great brands, but there's also 20 of them, right? So, you know, your success or ultimate success is going to be a little maybe more more challenged if you're in a different market or up against folks that, you know, in other competing brands have already built out the territories you're interested in. So we try to balance between the unit economics, the competitive landscape within that segment and in the markets that we want to be in um, and kind of take a look at it holistically. But you're right. There's not an exact science. There's nothing that says, yeah, check checks all the boxes let's go it's i think for every franchisee it's a unique process and some you know maybe more numbers focus some maybe more gut feel some maybe combination but the key i think i would say is that you kind of have to find where your comfort level and i think a lot of that comes with experience because I think when you're a young franchisee, you look at any concept like, oh, I, I can do X dollars in revenue, and here's the EBITDA margin. And you tend to think more things are possible. And I guess over time, we've been around for 35 years, and sometimes we get a little more skeptical at the outset now than maybe we used to. But we would have missed out on some great opportunities and brands if we weren't a little naive, I guess, in the beginning. And now I feel like sometimes we may be a little paralysis by analysis. We may dig in
0: almost too deep sometimes and cause us to say no a lot more often. So. Well, I mean it's the benefit and the curse of experience, right? I mean, so you you can't forget bad experiences from the past, but at the same time you don't want that to weigh too heavily on opportunities in the future. Exactly. Yeah. Well, tell me about some of the brands that you guys have invested in recently and that you're you're working with now. Yeah, so I know that we've done a couple exciting things uh, on the
1: retail side and you know we started with uh, one of the ones we've scaled up actually quite successfully has been uh Retta Center Uh, That is, uh, for those that may not be as familiar, um, it's a retail brand uh, in the rent-to-own retail space, predominantly focused on furniture, appliances, durable goods, home goods, kind of uh, uh, larger ticket items. And, um, you know, it's one where we started with the brand acquiring existing corporate locations in in kind of an initial test of a refranchising strategy back in 2015. The conversation, though, started in 2014, Uh, so we were talking for a while Getting to know each other and get to know the business model the brand kind of the, the outlook and you know we started with 40 locations just diving right in uh pulling the bandit off right from the beginning and uh growing uh to our current store count, which is 75 locations uh spread across the southeast uh across eight states what about on the food side on the food side we have um you know we we've kind of been in fortunate to be in some good brands that then for a handful of reasons, um, you know, we may have uh, divested of over the last few years, but uh, one of the, the exciting kind of newer food brands that we're in now is BurgerFi. Uh, we have three locations that we've developed uh, from the ground up here in the Tampa metro area, um, and I don't know if any, if you've ever had a chance to go to one, uh, but food is fantastic. Kind of a throwback to I guess what they call the glory days or the simple days, the menus being very you know simple kind of like the the but the modern take on kind of the the better burger space with local craft yeah. beers and um very neat cool design uh, kind of that industrial look and they've got a good box they've got a great menu the quality of the food you know made to order no microwaves no heat lamps, things like that so i think you know, even though there's a lot of uh, competition within the better burger space they have a great product and and we've been happy with it.
0: So for somebody, I mean, because you're an experienced franchisee at this point. I mean, obviously for for 35 years now and you've kind of grown up in this business, it's been sort of a family, uh, family business. And I and I know you you guys constantly are looking at new new and different opportunities, but um, with our remaining couple of minutes, you know, I, I think it would be helpful for, for those for, for folks out there who are looking to invest in different brands and and looking to grow multiple locations as you've, as you've done, what are some of the key things outside of the unit metrics, are you not, key things to maybe red flags to look for? I mean, you know, instead of, you know, what you look for on the good side, what, what are some things where you kind of say to yourself, boy, if this brand doesn't have this, or if this is what I'm getting from that brand, I think we're really going to stay away from that. Yeah. And I hope I don't get myself in trouble answering this question because we have a lot of great brand relationships, but uh. you don't have to name names. I just want to know the thought process because I think that, you know, franchisees, it's a really, really tough thing because again, they're bombarded with information in the FDDs, you know, hundreds of pages and, you know, smart ones get counsel and use other professionals, but still they're left with Okay, I've got all this information. I've got this franchisor telling me how great everything is all the time. Um, What are some of the red flags where you would say, "Hey, I need to find out more about that before I move forward"?
1: Yeah, and you know, it's it's a fair question, Josh. And I think for us, when we're looking at red flags, I mean, where we usually first start with is in that initial kind of diligence process. Yeah, you go through all the FDD and the docs, and you hear how great everything is, and you go for discovery day and whatnot, but is really digging to, you know, I guess it comes in, comes across on two sides, it is really looking at the level of support that you're going to get. And I think sometimes we've built up a kind of a list of questions that allow us to ask in a, in a very kind of matter-of-fact way, but to hopefully get answers that aren't maybe as cookie-cutter as they may be presented sometimes in, in official documentation. But, you know, sometimes, you know, brands, you know, are set up as franchisee-centric. Uh, and sometimes they're a combination of corporate and they have some franchise locations. And I think that in our experience, one of the things that's kind of pushed us away from undertaking an opportunity is when it seemed it didn't seem as if franchising and taking care of the franchisees um, was the priority. Right. I mean, it was, hey, we got this. We created a couple locations. Here's our unit volume. Now you guys go build it out. And here's what, you know, for your royalty and your national marketing contribution, here's what you get. And then whenever issues come up, because they always do, and it's never perfect, no matter how good or well-versed or experienced or not you are or the the franchise are is, you know, you have to be able to solve those challenges. And you got to be willing to get a good enough read in those early days before you pull sign on the dotted line as to can we work with this person to solve any major issue that comes up. And it could be related to opening locations. It could be supplier related. It could be customer related, it could be anything. And you gotta be able to work with them. And in some cases, you know, we didn't maybe get quite the confidence we were hoping for and that's prevented it. And then I think another avenue that, that helps us a lot to, in the yes or no or the red flag area um, is talking to existing franchisees in the system, who are their larger franchisees, who've been with them for a while, And, you know, that's part of the process and part of the diligence, but those conversations we take very seriously because that really illuminates. I mean, I think you get a lot of good, straightforward, honest answers from folks say, hey, this is good, and here's the stuff that maybe is not so good, but the combination of it is still positive. Okay, fair, and we can evaluate if the math for us is the same. And then in some cases where you get a lot of folks that maybe don't want to stay in the system anymore, that's usually not a good sign for us, right? So... um, Hopefully that answered your question and hope that input, no, I didn't put myself in trouble, mean, I but think, I think those two areas are, are now kind of risen to the top of our list when we kind of evaluate a new opportunity or
0: a new brand. Yeah, I mean, in some, I mean, right, talk to franchisees. You know, that's one thing that these folks really need to do and talk to. You know the existing franchisees and the ones who have left the system. I'm curious with um, real fast last question because I was thinking of this as you were answering. Is there a certain size that you guys require for a franchise system before you invest in them at this point?
1: That's a great question. And I think we're starting to get to that and defining that number. And I think that back in the day, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we wouldn't technically really get approved for some of the established brands because they didn't know who we were. They didn't know what our track record was. So we had to build our track record up with independent operations, as well as smaller and emerging brands where we were together with the brand in the same boat, growing together. And I think now as we become a little bit more mature, I think the systems that we look at, you know, and I know some some segments, like you look at food, you look at any of the food categories, you're talking thousands of units, right? Where it's that's something that, you know, has critical mass given how competitive a landscape overall food is. But if you look at retail, sometimes just having a few hundred could still be fine um, because you have a well-defined space. And it's a concept that we're, you know, you're really only opening up maybe one or two stores in a market. You can get a broader territory, right? So it's we, we're now getting to a point, I don't know if I have a great answer for you. I think it's a great question. But I think given now that we're more mature, we're tending to be a little choosier with maybe looking at skewing towards looking at some of the more mature brands based on the segment that they're in.
0: Well, if you want to learn more about uh, Sharon's company, uh, com. that's impact-properties.com. You can learn more about... Um, his business, his family's business, uh, you know, their investments and so forth. And, um, you know, Sharon, I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing this. I, you know, sometimes I know it's hard to know what impacts other people, but I can tell you somebody with your experience level and varied experience level throughout the, the franchise world, I think it's it's very, very helpful just to hear how you process your investments, how you look at an investment and how you decide, you know, which kind of franchise systems to work with so thank you for coming on and sharing that yeah thank you for having me thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of Franchise Euphoria. If you enjoyed this episode or have enjoyed the podcast in general, I would really appreciate it if you could go to iTunes and leave me a rating and review. It really helps to get this podcast out to more and more people. So the easy way to do it is go to iTunes and in the search box, put in Franchise Euphoria you will then see my cover art if you click on my smiling face that says Franchise Euphoria and then click on the link that says Ratings and Reviews. It's that simple, but boy, oh boy, does it mean the world to me when people leave ratings and reviews. And like I said, it really helps get the show out there. Once again, would love it if you would go to iTunes and leave a rating and review if you enjoyed this episode or other episodes of the show. And until the next time, happy franchising.